Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. Last week, we spent a good deal of time talking about Shakespearean tragedy in general, and Hamlet in particular. And this week, I would like to go immediately to the actual text of Hamlet, Act One, Scene One. And the first thing we notice is that about the first two dozen lines, maybe, or so, seem rather pointless in a way, or at least we're not sure why they are there. No wonder this play is so long. It's a playwright is this long-winded. Why do we really need these words of centuries relieving one set, relieving the other, and talking in what seem very general terms? Is this really necessary, or could it be cut? And that's that type of question for anybody directing the play is a very real question because the full text of Hamlet being, as we saw last week, a composite text of parts put together from various versions of the play. And once you do that, it's too long to play in any normal theatrical conditions, although it's certainly done so uh, at any number of times, but it would have to be with a long intermission in the middle because a full playing of Hamlet uncut is over four hours long, as is the Kenneth Branagh film of Hamlet. So most versions of Hamlet do a significant amount of cutting, and do we really need this stuff about this chatter of the centuries in the beginning? And the answer is, in fact, yes, because they exemplify, and in fact, they are the most famous instance of a kind of general rule that they teach you about Shakespearean drama, that the opening lines of a Shakespearean drama are very often, if not usually, a kind of key to the thematic concerns of the whole play that follows, very much like an overture of a symphony contains the themes that the symphony will later develop. And Hamlet, the opening of Hamlet is in fact the classical uh, version of this. It seems random, worried sentinels in the dark. Who's there? Nay. Answer me, stand and unfold yourself. The very first words we hear in the play are about uncertain identity. Who's there? If there were two words that summed up Hamlet, it might well, in a way, be those. Identity uncertain, friend or foe, distrust and paranoia. It very much sets the theme and the mood of the play, the paranoid, queasy mood that runs all the way through the play. It is not simply confined to the consciousness of the main character, but in fact haunts the very halls and walls of Elsinore Castle in Denmark. 
there is a paranoiac here in the dark. And a good reason for it. The famous line, something's rotten in the state of Denmark, and indeed there are several rotten things, so to speak. From the outside and from the inside, there is threat. From the outside, they are a fearing attack from Norway. And in the inside, they have been seeing the ghost of their recently dead king and are about to see it again. What's real and what is not is uncertain. And even more than that, a few other things thrown out with dry irony. Shakespeare has Bernardo say, long live the king. Oh yeah, well, our king is recently dead and we've got another king under some rather odd circumstances, though people don't know that quite yet. At any rate, what hour is it? Midnight. Tis now struck twelve. Get thee to bed, Francisco. Midnight, exactly twelve. It is not, midnight is no time. For a split second, it is the time between times. It is not Yesterday, it is not yet tomorrow. It is the zero hour. All of this beginning to build. Shakespeare usually works because he doesn't have the advantage that a fiction writer has of a narrator to say things and point things out. He has to drop things in. As, again, the musical analogy, like leitmotifs, drops them in suggestively no one probably in the audience catches them all or perhaps even a majority of them. And I think for sensitive listeners, a lot of it sinks down without thought into a subliminal area and may come back when prompted by something else in the action or the text. At any rate, they are very nervous. They are looking outward into the darkness, wondering if there's going to be attack, an attack from Norway. And they are looking inward into the interior of the castle because of a ghost that has been appearing. Again, we're not sure if this is real or not. Horatio says, tis but our fantasy. But we've seen him anyway. What we have two nights seen. We have seen this ghost not once, but two nights running, and third time's the charm. Look where it comes again, Marcellus says. It is in the same figure like the king that's dead. This time, however, rather than the underlings and soldiers, we have a major character with a little more active mentality, and that is Horatio, the best friend of Hamlet, who confronts the ghost. What art thou that usurped this time of night? Interesting word, Horatio. Horatio probably can have no real reason for having that word in his subconscious and come leaping out like some sort of Freudian slip. Although one wonders, 
how much people have been sitting around wondering about the strange and sudden mysterious death of the previous king, Hamlet Sr., and then the sudden rise to the throne, replacing him of his own brother, whose first act is to marry the bride of his brother, to marry his own sister-in-law, Gertrude, enough perhaps to set some of the more intelligent people in a slightly thoughtful mood. So maybe Horatio's unconscious is working a bit overtime. What art thou that usurps this time of night? Ghost ain't answering. Marcella says, it is offended. You've heard his feelings. He, see, it stalks away. He's going away. He's been insulted. He's not going to stick around for this. But at any rate, seriously, it is very like the dead king. And what does that mean? And Horatio says, what is on everybody's mind? This bodes some strange eruption to our state. And goes on to talk about the threat from without and the threat from within, weaving them together. What is the threat from outside, from Norway? And we learn the backstory that there was a man named Fortinbras Sr. There's a Fortinbras Sr and then his son, Fortinbras Jr. The name Fortinbras means strong in arms. And we have the theme of arms and the state. Hamlet is always treated and rightly treated as a drama of consciousness, a drama of alienated consciousness, and it very much is, but it is first of all, a social play, and we should not forget that level of the text. It is a play about power and about jockeying for power, and therefore on that side, related to Shakespeare's history plays that he had been writing in the whole first part of his career and made his initial reputation writing history plays rather than tragedies. And in fact, the most successful history play, perhaps, that Shakespeare had written up to this time, or at least one of the four members of the tetralogy of history plays that are his greatest achievement in that genre, is Richard II. And Richard II has some real resemblances to Hamlet. But Richard II is different from Hamlet. There is the business of killing the rightful king, however. There is also the business of consciousness and someone locked into their own isolated consciousness, Richard himself, who makes speeches that could practically have come out of the mouth of Hamlet. But in terms of the political themes of the play, Richard II harps incessantly upon what later would be called the divine right of kings, the fact that when the rightful king is killed, the king is God's anointed, and killing God's anointed puts a curse upon the state. It would be anachronistic to talk of that 
in Hamlet because Hamlet is supposed to be set long before the period of that doctrine back in the Middle Ages and in Denmark, in Scandinavia, no less. However, Shakespeare had also just got done writing his first mature political tragedy, Julius Caesar, just a year or two before Hamlet. And sure enough, here Horatio speaks of when the mighty Julius fell. Graves stood tenantless, and the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets, as stars with trains of fire and dews of blood, disasters in the sun, and the moist star upon whose influence Neptune's empire stands was sick almost to doomsday with eclipse, and even the like precurse of feared events. When mighty Julius fell, there was no divine right of kings in medieval Denmark yet. There was certainly no divine right of kings when Julius Caesar fell, and he wasn't actually the king anyway. He was killed lest he become one. But nevertheless, the idea that when the proper ruler is killed, that sets loose chaos, complete with supernatural events and omens of all sorts portending bad times in the state. And so here. Because Fortinbras Sr. had attacked Denmark and gone into battle one upon one with Hamlet Sr. So the two seniors of the previous generation went up against each other. Their armies did, but then they ended up fighting it out individually, and Fortinbras lost and was killed, and all the territory that he had conquered was ceded to Denmark. That did not sit well with his son, young Fortinbras, who is out there planning revenge and might invade, the common assumption is that he might invade at any moment, and that will turn out to be true, as a matter of fact. And it sets up young Fortinbras and young Hamlet as successors to the two senior members. That puts Hamlet in the position of political leader or potential political reader leader, and again, we should not forget that level of the play. Hamlet can be treated as a sort of a uh, existentialist intellectual before his time, sitting around and philosophizing all the time, but we should not lose sight of the power themes of the play. The suspicious thing about this encounter with the ghost, which Horatio and the others are clearly aware of that they don't quite put it in words, although they come pretty close. Bernardo says, it was about to speak when the cock grew. And Horatio replies, and then it started like a guilty thing upon a fearful summons.
a guilty thing. And the audience would have known the folklore that ghosts are loose from hell in a Christian tradition. Ghosts don't just wander around. They have to return to the place whence they came when dawn comes, signaled by the crowing of the cock. What does that mean about this ghost? It might mean that this ghost is, in fact, a damned spirit. For Hamlet to treat it as dear old dad in a family reunion and to listen to his dad's advice, that's a dangerous assumption on Hamlet's part, which Hamlet is at least intermittently aware of. This could be simply a demon in disguise, or it could be a damned soul completing its damnation by trying to bring damnation forward into the world of the living, but having to retreat back to where it came from at dawn, like a guilty thing. Suddenly, the minor character of Marcellus erupts seemingly inconsequentially with a beautiful lyrical passage. Let me read that passage to you. It's about Christmas. It's about the nativity. Once, when I was young, as a matter of fact, I made homemade Christmas cards and copied this as the text of the Christmas cards and sent them to friends and relatives. Heaven knows what they made of that, but it is a beautiful passage. Marcellus says, Some say that ever against that season comes wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated. This bird of dawning singeth all night long, and then, they say, no spirit dare stir abroad. The nights are wholesome. Then no planets strike, no fairy takes, nor witch hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is that time. And what is this beautiful lyrical moment doing in the midst of the darkness and the paranoia and the fear of ghosts that we have just witnessed through the whole of the first scene because this occurs at the very end of Act One, Scene One. And I think that's the point, the contrast. Suddenly, a moment of peace, a moment of sacred hope. The contrast with the rottenness of the state of Denmark is startling, and that is what is intended. We move indoors in Act 1, Scene 2, and in fact we move to the throne room with King Claudius holding forth to the court audience, which includes our hero Hamlet, among others, though it takes a while for Hamlet to begin to speak. The king is addressing exactly the political crisis that we have been talking about. 
Claudius, say what you will about him, is an active and a strong king. He makes decisive decisions and makes decisive commands. And he has sized up the situation politically rather shrewdly and deals with it in a very quick, practical manner. We know young Fortinbras, and we know, frankly, that he's a bit of a hothead. He's young, he's immature, he has a short fuse, and he's all up according to the meaning of his own name, strong in arms. He's all up in the air about honor and revenge for his father's defeat. But we also know that this rather immature, intemperate young man has an uncle, and I've been in contact with the uncle, and I've got the uncle to agree. Uh, Norway, the uncle of young Fortinbras, uh, who did not know about this. He's impotent and bedrid. He's bedrid. He scarcely hears of his nephew's purpose. So I have informed him of this in hopes that he will restrain the hot-headedness of young Fortinbras. And we hope that that will contain the crisis. To which Laertes says, Laertes a kind of opposite number to Hamlet in a way, brother of Ophelia, Hamlet's girlfriend, and the son of Polonius, the old courtier. Laertes says, that's good. May I now have permission, your highness, to return to France, from whence, though willingly, I came to Denmark to show my duty in your coronation. Nevertheless, that's done. May I go back to France again? We note that Denmark is a place that everybody wants to leave as soon as possible. Uh, they didn't want to come here, and they would really like to get out of here as soon as possible. It's true of Hamlet. It's true of Laertes. The place has something hanging in it that spooks people, to use the obvious pun. And people are not comfortable here. They would like to be out of here. They are uneasy. The king does give permission to Laertes, but does not give permission to Hamlet, because the situation is different. Hamlet, as Claudius explicitly points out, is now immediate heir to the throne, line 109 in scene two. You are the most immediate heir to the throne and therefore uh, wishes for Hamlet not to go back to school in Wittenberg. Hamlet was at university. There's a famous old controversy about how old Hamlet is because according to a line thrown off in Act 5, he's apparently pushing 30, so he's one of those lifelong undergraduates, if that's true, who never gets around to graduating. But at any rate, most people tend, I think, to think of Hamlet as young and more of a traditional college age, 
And we don't want you to go to back to school in Wittenberg. Political reasons are against it. And we get the first words out of our hero's mouth. Hamlet has been standing there. I always tell my students when I teach Shakespeare, you have to produce the play in your mind. And that means visualizing it. And I mean that quite seriously. It's not just a game. You have to imagine what it would be like, what the audience would see and experience. It's not enough to just read it as a text. And what we would see is Hamlet off to the side in a corner, dressed in black, even though the funeral has been a good while ago. How much ago is something of a question. The text is a bit inconsistent about that. But he is still wearing black mourning garments when apparently he doesn't strictly need to, according to custom. But there he is standing out by being dressed in black, saying absolutely nothing, like a sulking teenager, until the king and the queen directly address him, and he has to respond. And again, like a sulky teenager, he answers in a series of about four one-liners, every single one of which is sarcastic. And another thing to note, every single one of them is a play on words, a pun or some sort of double meaning. Claudius addresses Hamlet as my cousin and my son, meaning he is now his adopted son because of having married Gertrude, Hamlet's mother. Hamlet immediately squelches that by saying a little more than kin and less than kind. Kind having an Elizabethan double meaning Kind, as in kindness, of course, so there's a barb in it, but kind also meaning of the same family or species biologically. And okay, the king gets it. You're not in a good mood. How is it, Claudius says, that the clouds still hang on you? Oh, not so, my lord. I am too much in the sun. And, of course, the text printed says S-U-N, but Hamlet is clearly implying S-O-N. I am too much the son. In other words, I'm no son of yours, baby, and don't mistake it. The queen tries, mom tries to smooth things over between her new husband and her clearly pissed-off son, and urges Hamlet, cast thy knighted color off, give up the black. Do not forever with thy veiled lids seek for thy noble father in the dust. Thou knowest tist common, all that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity. And the third barbed one-liner, I, madam, it is common 
She meant common in the sense of universal, the human condition. He means common in the sense of commonplace or vulgar or worthless. You have rendered it worthless, my dear father. If it be, the queen says, who either doesn't get it or pretends not to get it, why seems it so particular with thee? Seems, madam? Nay, it is. I know not seems, and goes into a long speech about seeming and people who seem to be, which includes most of Denmark, as we will later see in the play, because Hamlet is quite right that most people in this play are not what they seem, and he's most definitely right about Hamlet and Gertrude. I know not seems. Where Hamlet may or may not be right is about himself. He constantly, this is only the first of many times, when he proclaims himself adamantly a man who is always honest, never seems. I am not a hypocrite like everybody else in this society. Uh, well, we have to decide what we think about that. He's about to go into a madman act, after all. But seeming and honesty, appearances and truth. Again, the play still setting up oppositions, thematic questions that will be developed and developed. And Nevertheless, Hamlet does not soften up or try to put a, a good twist on it, and they simply have to break up the meeting and exit all but Hamlet, and Hamlet launches into the first of his many famous soliloquies. Other characters make soliloquies in Shakespearean tragedy, but Hamlet's are the most famous, every single one of them, and it is utterly characteristic that Hamlet, of all of Shakespeare's tragic heroes, would be the one to speak regularly in soliloquies. He is an isolate, he is a solitary, even though he does have friends. He's still a solitary, and he's constantly brooding brooding, brooding darkly, as he is here. I'd like to re read the whole speech because so much of Shakespeare needs to be read. It is spoken poetry, and it also needs the expression to bring out both meaning and mood. I'm not an actor, and please forgive the deficiency of whatever performance is here, and yet I will try to read it with the passion that it has to be read with to get across. There's more here than simply the words. There is the volcano of feeling that erupts in this soliloquy. Hamlet alone saying, oh, that this too, too sullied flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. 
or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God, God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fie on it! Ah, fie! Tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely. That it should come to this. But two months dead. Nay, not so much, not two. So excellent a king that was to this Hyperion to a satyr. So loving to my mother that he might not be team the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Heaven and earth must I remember. Why she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. And yet within a month, let me not think on it. Frailty, thy name is woman. A little month, or ere these shoes were old with which she followed my poor father's body, like Niobe, all tears. Why, she, even she, oh God, a beast that once discourse of reason would have mourned longer, married with my uncle, my father's brother, but no more like my father than I to Hercules, within a month ere yet the salt of most unrighteous tears had left the flushing in her galled eyes, she married. A wicked speed to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. It is not, nor it cannot come to good. But break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. There's an awful lot of emotion about the fact that your mother got married almost immediately after the funeral of your father, which, oh, may well be considered inappropriate. I mean, leaving out the fact, of course, that there was a murder involved, with which Hamlet does not even know yet. He claims later to have suspected it, but... He doesn't really know anything about the fact that there was a murder and assassination. It's simply not Claudius's ascent to the throne, though Claudius he despises him. It's his mother's marriage within a month, he claims. And the language to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. Hamlet's therapist might well have pointed out that he's a little bit overly preoccupied with his mother's sex life. And, of course, as some of you may know, one of the most famous interpretations of Hamlet, not by Freud himself, but by the English follower of Freud, Ernest Jones, is indeed that Hamlet suffers from an Oedipus complex, that he hates Claudius so much because Claudius has done what he would secretly or unconsciously want to do, and that is to bed his own mother. Incestuous sheets, the marriage between 
a man and his brother's wife, or in reverse, the marriage of a woman to the husband's brother, was indeed regarded in Elizabethan times as too close, quasi-incestuous, a little too close for comfort, but incest, all in the family, and it's not good. Hamlet is utterly, passionately disgusted, and he regards it as bestial. The emotion, in other words, we're, we're not terribly comfortable with it either, but the emotion seems to be in excess of what is called for here, and we are immediately, before we get out of Act One, wondering a little about Hamlet's real motives under the surface. He claims not to be playing a double part, but we wonder whether Hamlet is even aware of what lies under his own surface. At any rate, this is a remarkable speech. I'll simply end for this week by noting one thing, the very first line of that speech, oh, that this too, too sullied flesh would melt. Sullied flesh. Last week I spoke of how different readers in the 20th and 21st centuries reading modern editions might very well read a slightly different text based on different editors' choices. And in fact, I still remember the copy that we read the play in when I read it for the first time in high school is, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. Another choice from one of the three possible variants of the text of Hamlet. Even the text is ambiguous. We'll go on next week with Hamlet.